The reading is found on page 1231. That's 1,231. It's from Jude. It's starting at the first verse, page 1231. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men, whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men, who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality, and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Let's pray. We just sung that soul, though all hell should endeavour to shake, he'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. We praise you, our Heavenly Father, for the firm foundation we have in your word. And we're conscious, Father, that many things will try and knock us off course. And we pray, Father, that this morning, this letter of Jude would keep us on course, never being uh, shaken and never forsaken what you've given to us in the gospel. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll never forget what happened on the 15th of September, 2008. It was a normal Monday morning. I woke up for work, bleary-eyed. And um, as I turned on the radio, news was breaking out that Lehman Brothers, this huge American bank, had gone bust. Now, this um, is a company that's... uh, that had $600 billion worth of assets, so it's bigger even than the country of Turkey. And the whole thing uh, was going into bankruptcy. And as the day went on, um, it seemed that Lehman Brothers was going to start a domino effect uh, where other firms would collapse. And uh, this was what was happening to the market. This is the Dow Jones. Now, if you're a financial person, this is a horror show. And I'm sorry to have to show this to you. I'll get it off the screen in a moment. But that's not good, Okay. And uh, it seemed uh, like uh, it was going to be one firm uh, after the other. Now, um, as I've probably said before many times, I was working uh, for the organization that, whose job it was 
to, um, whose job it was to keep the financial system on track. And let me say, my job changed that day. I had one job to do, and that was to make sure the firms I looked after actually existed by 5 p.m. See, I had all sorts of plans for that week ahead, what I would do, projects I would start on, but they were useless if the firm didn't actually exist. See, when there's a bigger threat, plans have to change. And that's what gives rise to this letter of Jude. Um, Look at verse 3 with me. He says this, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once was once for all entrusted to the saints. See, Judah planned to write a letter uh, about the church's salvation. But the plan changed when that church's salvation was under threat. Now this morning we're beginning a mini-series on the book of Jude. Now chances are that Jude is not on our most read list of uh, Bible books. I I imagine that one or two of us needed a page number because we forget where it is. Um, I've done that, don't worry. Um, But it is a very important book. Because it warns us as Christians that we're not home and dry yet. And this side of heaven, there can be all sorts of threats which will pull us off course. Now, when I was um, responding to the financial crisis in my little way, um, I had to ask three questions. I had to ask what the threat was, what the impact could be, and what I was going to do about it. And that's what I wanted to do this morning. Ask what the threat is, what the impact could be, And then what can we do about it as a church? First of all then, what's the threat? Well, look at what he says in verse 4. He says, For certain men, whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. Now, uh, the men he's talking about there uh, were teachers, Christian leaders. Now, what's wrong with them? Verse 4 again, They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Now, what's he mean there by change the grace of our God into a license for immorality? Well, there are two ways you can distort the gospel. You can either add to it or you can either subtract from it. Now, I think as evangelicals, we're more sensitive to the danger of adding to the gospel. We we know that salvation is not our work. It's God's work. We're saved by grace alone. And we know that if we add to it by thinking that we can work our way to heaven, you destroy it. But here's the thing. You can also destroy the gospel by subtracting from it. There was a phrase um, I've heard over the years, not here so much, but in previous churches, where people would say, it doesn't matter what you do. And um, that was often said by well-meaning Christians, and um, I don't think they, they meant... Um, they, they meant by it, you're not justified by what you do. You're not counted right with God by, by what you do. But that doesn't mean the same as it doesn't matter what you do. See, in fact, Jesus says the opposite. Look at this. Um, this is a great commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. See, the fact that we're saved by grace alone doesn't mean that God doesn't care about our conduct. See, Jesus spent much of his ministry teaching his disciples how they should live. 
And yet these teachers that Jude writes to have scrubbed those bits out of their Bibles. Now, have they done that? Well, um, when I first read this, I kind of imagined that they would stand up and they would say, don't worry about immorality. But I, I imagine that would have set alarm bells off in the church. Um, and, and as you look closer, you see that it's more subtle than that. See, look at what he says in verse 4 about their entrance. He says, they have secretly slipped in among you. Now, it doesn't mean they've turned up in a dis- disguise, they've worn a dog collar and uh, no one's noticed, but it means that they sound legit. See, look at verse 8. He says that they are dreamers. So it seems that um, these guys are claiming some sort of divine vision. See, they look Christian, they teach like Christians, and they claim that God has spoken to them. You can imagine, can't you, saying things like, God has told me you need to be free. That there's no judgment this side of the cross. So why restrict yourself to this book? Be free. Get visions. Restricting yourself to this book, that's so fundamentalist. I mean, why live assuming that sex should be within the confines of marriage when you can be free to express yourself? Or or why live denying yourself, giving up your time and your money when God wants you to be happy and God wants you to be blessed? See, by claiming a divine hotline, these teachers have turned liberty into license. And the same pattern repeats itself today. See, not all church ministers will teach the authentic gospel. They will distort it to justify their lifestyle. Now, I woke up to this a, uh, about a decade ago. I um, was in a shop, a coffee shop, having a coffee with my friend, and um, someone walked past us who my friend knew. And he sat down, and he started talking to me, and it turned out we had a mutual friend in common. And this guy was a minister in the church, and uh, he just went on for about 20 minutes about just how much God was doing through him. I mean, he felt so blessed. Uh, there was converts every week. Uh, it seemed that the Spirit was being poured out over his ministry. And I just listened to him, and I thought, wow, this guy's the business. But the next week, I called up with a friend who knew him, and uh, they told me that he'd been having an affair. And he just left his wife and two kids. And God taught me on that day that not everyone who speaks about the gospel lives the gospel. Now, I know some of us are very gentle in our temperaments, and we're very generous people, and I thank God for that. Gentleness is a good thing. We shouldn't love a fight. We shouldn't be quarrelsome. And I know there'll be others of us who are conscious that we don't always get things right, and we're worried about picking the speck out of our eye and missing the, someone else's eye and missing the plank. But Jude does warn us not to be naive. There will always be the threat of people who turn the gospel of grace into a license for sin. Now, why does this matter? Well, the next question uh, under our second point is, what's the impact? Now, when I was back in this um, financial crisis, um, I, um, part of my job was to try to check the exposure of some of these firms. And uh, the firm I was looking after got back to me and they said, um, we think we've lost 20 million uh, pounds. And I said, phew, because 20 million pounds in the scheme of things was not that big a deal that day. But the potential impact here is much more than 20 million pounds. 
And uh, it's more even than the collapse of a firm. It's, and we see it in verses 5 to 7. See, in verses 5 to 7, Jude gives us a bit of a history lesson. And um, there's lots here that is very, very confusing. And I'm sorry if you were hoping for a detailed explanation of verses 5 to 7, because you won't get one uh, from me this morning. But please do come and speak to me afterwards, and I'll be quite happy to explain how far I've got. Um, First of all, he talks in verse 5 about the Exodus. Now, what happened in the Exodus? Well, God saved a group of people by grace. But remember what happened to those people, he says. What happened to them? Well, apart from two, all of them died. And why did they die? Because they took God's grace, but they did not listen to his voice when he told them to enter the promised land. He talks about the angels in verse 6, referring to an incident in Genesis 6. Now, that is off the chart confusing, um, and as I say, I'm not going to go into it now. But the point is, what happened to them? They were put in chains, he said. Why? Because they did not obey. They did not uh, keep to their position. In verse 7, he speaks about Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, those towns famously had a sexual revolution. They had no constraints on their moral life. And the incident he refers to is when two angels, again, ask me later, uh, visit these cities. And while they were staying, the men of the town gathered around the house and called them out so that they could have their way with them. See, the point is, Sodom and Gomorrah thought obedience didn't matter. They could live free and easy, and it didn't matter how they treated others. But God brought fire down on those cities, uh, so that all is left is burning embers. Now, the point is, do you see the common thread between all three? All three have some sort of disobedience, some sort of immorality, and then some sort of outcome. See, all three people thought God didn't care about morality. And yet, judgment was the outcome. In fact, in the first two of those incidents, people were in a very privileged position. Uh, The people were brought out of slavery in Egypt, and yet, when they disobeyed, it didn't mean that God ignored it. And the angels, you think, who could touch the angels uh, with their privileged status? But even they faced judgment when they ignored God's word. Now, as I was looking at this, I thought to myself, why is the church being told this? It's interesting, isn't it? Jude isn't addressing the false teachers, so why warn the church of this judgment? But imagine what effect this would have on the church, knowing that these guys who look so impressive, who claim some sort of divine revelation, are essentially leading a people on a path to hell. Now, to give you an example of this, imagine you took a boat trip on holiday, and it is a beautiful day. The the ocean is blue. It's always blue, isn't it? But deep blue. The sun's in the sky. It's a clear sky. And you head out, and you head out for a couple of hours, and then suddenly there's this deep clunk in the engine. And someone goes down to repair it, but they come up pretty confused, and it becomes clear that you're going to be stranded. And so someone calls a mayday in, and an hour or so later, a life raft appears. And you put on the life jacket, you get on board of uh, the lifeboat, and you begin travelling back to shore. And you're all sitting there in the lifeboat, um, travelling back to shore, uh, sitting in your life jackets, and someone suddenly stands up and says, I don't like this life jacket, I don't like this lifeboat, it's too restrictive. 
I, I don't like this life jacket. It doesn't fit with my complexion. I, I don't like the way this lifeboat is being steered. It's not being driven very well. I don't like these rules like we've got to sit down while we're traveling. And they get up and they say, who's with me? And they strip off the jacket, stand on the edge, and then jump into the sea. Now, who of us would be with them? I imagine very few of us. And it's, the point is, it's the same with this teaching here. See, when we know where it's heading, essentially judgment, we won't want to be any part of it. Now, I know people will be here this morning, and, and we hear these strong descriptions, and Perhaps we think to ourselves, is this not just fire and brimstone stuff to to kind of frighten people? But actually, the more you think about it, it is a good thing, isn't it? That God takes hypocrisy so seriously. Whenever I'm speaking to someone who's who's consciously decided not to be a Christian, nine times out of ten, they've got a story about a hypocritical Christian. Someone who led a church who, I mean, I've got so many I could tell you, but uh, someone who's led a church and slept with members of the congregation, or someone who's led a Christian community and robbed people of their money, or someone who's lived a double life so they look holy on a Sunday, but people really know what they're getting up to in the week. And it's right when people tell me that they should be angry, that Christian leaders who do this. But I want to say to those people that God takes that hypocrisy even more seriously than you do. See, God cares about morality. And Jude says, don't miss that. We heard about the threat, the impact. What are we to do about it? Well, look at what he urges in verse 3. He says, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith. Now, that word contend means fighting with everything we've got. And I want us to notice two things here. First of all, what we're contending for. And secondly, who's doing the contending? Do you see what we're contending for in verse 3? Contend for the faith. But he has a very interesting way of putting it. Listen to this. That was once entrusted to all the saints. So it's not just we have faith. It's not kind of George Michael, you've got to have faith. It's um, faith in something. It's faith in what's entrusted now, you start to see this as we go through, Jude, that um, it's faith in the, what the apostles taught. See, the apostles, uh, the twelve, they, um, they, they had an important role in the church. They took um, what Jesus taught and gave it to us in the New Testament. And Jude says it's not something you can add to or take away from. It's to be held on to. It's like having uh, the temporary ownership to a um, precious work of art. You're not to kind of improve it. You're not to kind of lighten up the sky. You're just to hold on to it because it's beautiful already. And Jude says you need to contend. You need to hold on to what the apostles taught. Now there are people in the church, and I say this with a heavy heart and not lightly, People who dislocate faith from the teaching of the apostles. And the way they do this today is very subtle, and you need to listen out for this. People end up talking about the Holy Spirit in distinction to the apostles' teaching, as if the Holy Spirit has a different message to the one 
the apostles spoke. Take, for example, I don't do much Church of England chat, but I'm going to do a little bit. Uh, Take this report on human sexuality from a few years ago. And listen to what it says. It's very subtle, this. It says, the spirit is alive in the church and is, we believe, leading us into all truth. Agreed? The work of the spirit should make us receptive to the possibility of new knowledge and new insights. Now, of course, we don't, not all of us know it all. We look for new insights into scripture. But notice what it's saying. New knowledge. New insights. See, it's subtly put in a wedge between the Holy Spirit's words and the Apostle's words that he inspired. Secondly, who does the contending, though? Well, notice who the letter is written to. It's not just the clergy, and it's not just to a bishop. It's to the whole church. Now, I I guess some of us might hear this this morning and think, oh, goodness me, I'm not in a position to start writing to bishops And I certainly don't want to join Church of England committees. But that is not what Jude is calling us to. We contend, all of us, by holding on to the apostles' teaching. See, if we want St. Mary's to be a gospel-centered church over the decades to come, all of us have a part to play. See, to contend means teaching our families about the faith we going home and and our children are running about and and this is probably the last thing we want to do. But contending means we we sit down with them and we teach them the apostolic faith. See, contend means spending our time, like lots of us do, teaching small groups, teenage groups, house groups. Contend means coming alongside another Christian who's having a bit of a wobble and encouraging them to keep with it. See, we're all called to contend. And we do that by all encouraging one another in the gospel. And it's that gospel that Jude reminds this church of. I want to finish by looking at verse 1. Look at how he describes them in verse 1. To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. See, notice that. If you're a Christian this morning, God has called you out. Before the earth was... When the earth was just a blueprint, God chose you. He says you're loved by God the Father. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to be loved, for those of us who are. It makes our hearts sing. And we're loved by the one whose love never fades. He says you're kept by Jesus. Jesus doesn't just save us at the cross and then say, fend for yourself. He is our protector. He is with us day by day. See, the reason for all this, the reason we contend, is because of the beauty of what we have in the gospel. Now, some of you here this morning will have um, uh, engagement rings. Now, blokes uh, and those who don't, we have to use our imagination. But an engagement ring, I guess, is pretty special to you. I don't know why I'm holding that up. That's not an engagement ring. That's a wedding ring. But it's pretty special to you, isn't it? Now, obviously, it's the kind of financial worth of the engagement ring. But it's much more than that, isn't it? See, that engagement ring represents a story. A story that began at a proposal or someone getting down on their knee and asking you the question and the wedding. And it reminds you of that someone thought you were special enough to choose it, to, to buy it for you, to present it to you. Now imagine if I said, 
about your engagement, if I saw your engagement ring and I said, please, would you swap it for one of these? This is my daughter's uh, plastic ring. I think they're three for a pound in Tiger. <laughs> what would you say? See, what we have in the death of the resurrection of Jesus is so precious. It's not worth endangering for anything else in the world. And Jude says, remember that. As we finish, let me just set up three um, implications uh, I think we can take away. Um, First of all, don't equate liberty with license. Don't equate liberty with license. We need to be careful, don't we, that we don't teach grace in a way that undermines holiness. Now, holiness is a good thing. It's what Jesus has saved us for. And holiness is not the opposite to the gospel. So if we're teaching our families, if we're teaching small groups, if we're teaching up front, we need to remember that living as Jesus wants is the right way, even if it is not what justifies us. Secondly, remember false teachers don't wear badges. Um, Jude reminds us to be alert that there will be people in the church who look the part but will lead people astray. See, just because someone has a dog collar or a bishop's mitre or stands on a platform at a conference doesn't mean that they should be listened to. We need to look at their lifestyle. We need to look at what other people say about their lifestyle, not just what they claim. Thirdly, remember we're all in the fight together. Of course, Clive has a particular role to play in the Church of England, and there are some of us who suffer on Church of England committees, and uh, we should pray for them, of course, and support them. But our attention shouldn't ultimately be there. Our attention should be here on making sure our church is a gospel focused church. We all want it to be. We all have a role to play in contending for that and encouraging each other to do the same. Let's pray. I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once entrusted to the saints. Father, we need um, your strength to do that work. Father, thank you for your word that warns us that uh, there are threats to the gospel. And we pray, Father, for any of us here who are perhaps having a wobble, that you would encourage us with these words, that you you love us, you keep us, and you have chosen us. And we pray for us all, Father, that as a church community, we would all contend for the gospel. We would hold on to it. We would keep it what the apostles have taught. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.